Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to another amazing day right here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Your last show of the week, because today is a wonderful Friday. So in case I forget to tell you at the end, I hope everybody has a great weekend. But before we kick off this wonderful Friday, I... Do have a show to do for y'all, and man, do I have one planned. There's been a whole lot of things we need to go over. A lot of things happening this week. Session's really starting to move now. Keep in mind, they still had only passed one bill, but session's starting to move a little bit more. And we've got some big pieces of legislation to discuss. But before I go into it, um, I want to remind everybody about House Bill 204. That's Marion Proctor's bill to take a look at that certificate of need. I've been talking about it every single day on my show. So you want to make sure uh, to be doing your part to go ahead and reach out to uh, Kimberly Mosier. House Bill 204 would eliminate what's called the um, competitor's veto in our healthcare industry. So in Kentucky right now, for those of you who listen every day, sorry to repeat, but uh, in in Kentucky right now, it is a requirement for you to ask permission from the government if you're in healthcare and you want to open up a new location, buy new equipment, add beds. And a part of that process of approval is they actually turn to your would-be competitors and ask them if it's okay if you open up. And then they can go ahead and decide they want to veto that uh, expansion. And so this bill, House Bill 204, would seek to get rid of that, which would help create a more competitive marketplace for healthcare in Kentucky, help drive down healthcare costs. But, of course, it helps those who are currently in business. And Kimberly Mosier, Representative Mosier, Chair of the Health Services Committee, is not a big fan of doing that because... Well, it's not a big secret. She gets a lot of money from the hospitals. Uh, Her husband works for the hospitals. St. East, one of the biggest hospital systems in northern Kentucky, that is like the only hospital system in northern Kentucky due to these laws, benefits greatly from this. So there's a lot of financial reason why she doesn't want to listen to you, the people, but we're putting pressure on her. So you want to leave a message for Kimberly Mosier at 1-800-372-7181. Once again, that's 1-800-372-7181. That's a Legislative Research Commission uh, legislator hotline, 1-800-372-7181, and leave a message and say, I want to leave a message for Kimberly Moser telling her to move House Bill 204. You can also shoot her an email at Kimberly.Moser. that's spelled uh, M-O-S-E-R, Kimberly.Mosier at lrc.ky.gov. So it's Kimberly.Mosier at lrc.ky.gov. Just want to give you all that reminder uh, before we uh, get too much further along into the show. Just want to do that. But um, we'll be covering, mainly today, we'll be covering some bills that Damon Thayer has filed. It seems like where he's on his way out, he's not running for re-election again. He's running some bills that he feels is important and necessary, but bills that, of course, throwing your name on would have political ramifications, but where he's leaving, maybe he feels a little bit more comfortable to do so. So we'll be digging into those. But before I do dig into those bills, I want to clear up something from tomorrow, yesterday, uh, and that is House Bill 500. So I talked about this yesterday. House Bill 500 put out by Philip Pratt, 
is a sweeping bill changing many of labor laws. And so I spoke about it in the show, but I've been getting a lot of messages, a lot of comments, uh, a lot of tags on the socials where people have been asking me about this bill thinking, um, you know, I, I heard your show. I heard you kind of dig into it, but what about what I'm hearing here? What about what I'm hearing here? And one of the questions I'm hearing a lot deals with the lunch break issue. And I spoke about this yesterday, but something I don't think I made quite clear is what this law is exactly doing. So instead of mandating a lunch break, this is what the law says. It says that um, if your employer doesn't provide you, if an employer doesn't provide an employee a set-aside paid meal break um, or a set-aside meal break for you to eat, then you can eat while on the job and they can't dock your pay for it. So basically what they're setting up is unless they give you a meal break, they don't have to pay you for it. They don't have to pay for meal breaks now. But unless they give you a, a lunch break, you're allowed to eat whenever you want to on the job and they can't dock your pay for it. But if they do give you a lunch break and then you eat on your job, then they can dock your pay for eating while at work. What this is setting up, is it's trying to get rid of this requirement to make a lunch break mandatory while also at the same time keeping it basically mandatory for the jobs where that's important. Because remember, the entire purpose behind this House Bill 500 legislation was to make it clearer where it came to office jobs, specifically uh, administrative jobs, not as much the blue-collar factory, um, you know, warehouse you know, construction jobs, not to, it wasn't their regulations that was the problem. What was happening and been happening, and, and I tried to explain this as best I could yesterday, is that employers are essentially in mass breaking the law with office staff because office, and, and, and it's not something they know that they're doing because currently in law, office staff aren't allowed to, for an example, eat lunch at their desk while they're working on their computer. Office staff need to have a set-aside break room where they can't be bothered with any work at all, that office staff and salaried employees are supposed to be being paid overtime if they work more than 40 hours a week. Though all of us who've ever worked a salaried job know that it <clears throat> normally requires you to work over 40 hours a week. And so you end up in a weird position where most employers don't have you clock in and clock out. You're just told to get your job done. And then if you come back and you're like, I can't do the job in 40 hours a week, you're going to have to pay me time and a half. They'll say, okay, we'll just get somebody else who is capable and, and able to get the job done in 40 hours a week. Because clearly there's just a, a problem that you're not equipped with the right tools to get this done. And we're limited to only giving you 40 hours a week to get it done. So of course, we know that that happens in office jobs. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's what happens. Everybody's doing it, but it's technically illegal. And so this bill's trying to deal with that. But it's not really going to end up taking away the lunch breaks from those blue collared staff, which is what I'm hearing people worried about. Because follow me. The This bill says... House Bill 500, it's changing that lunch law. But what it's saying is, is, once again, if they don't give you a lunch, they can't stop you from eating on the job and they have to pay you for it. What are they going to do? What, what, imagine you're, you're a forklift operator in a warehouse and they, and they say, you know what, we're going to be super mean. We need to get things done. We, we're going to treat you all 
uh, like like you know with, like tyrants, you're not getting a lunch break. You're gonna work eight hours with no meal break. Well, according to current law, they can't fire you, and they also can't get you in trouble for if while you're operating that forklift, you're eating a burrito. They can't get you in trouble for it. And how many warehouses and factories have you ever worked in where they will let somebody eat a burrito while picking an order or eat a burrito while operating a piece of equipment or have a sandwich or snack constantly throughout? Of course not. They won't let you eat on the floor like that. And so they're going to have to give you a lunch break or they can't stop you. I mean, you, you can't have Bob eating on the work site in construction, just sitting there hammering a nail in one hand, holding a, a taquito in the other, eating it. You can't have Bob doing that. You got to give him a lunch break or else you can't stop him from doing that. So that's what they're trying to address is the office side of things. But the way they're structuring it, it's basically creating a, a situation where you can eat at your desk and work in an office if it means you can get out earlier or what have you. Because that's the other thing. You can't leave early if you say, hey, I want to leave work an hour early. Well, you can't do that. If you just say, I want to work through my lunch and leave an hour early, under current law, you're not technically allowed to do that. So it's letting you do that, but not affecting the blue-collar workers. Well, when we come back, we'll be digging into some new pieces of legislation. Um, you've been listening to The Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooperwriter. We'll be back here in a few, few short minutes. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooperwriter. So Senate Majority Leader Thayer is on his way out. And on his way out, he decided to drop some pieces of legislation that is interesting, to say the least. And so we're going to talk about two of them. We're talking about Senate Bill 100 and Senate Bill 350. Senate Bill 100 is a campaign finance bill. Senate Bill 350 is a legislator state, you know, obviously, legislator compensation bill. What state legislators get paid. So we're going to look at Senate Bill 100 first. And honestly, I've seen some split reactions on this. I'm going to give you my opinion, and I think it may actually disagree with some of you, but you got to keep in mind, I'm coming at this as a person who's been a candidate before. I've dealt with our campaign finance laws as a candidate. I've seen what it means in practice. I've seen how who it affects and how it affects them, and it's actually made me um, believe I, I don't hate this bill. And I know a lot of other people hate Senate Bill 100. Uh, I've seen it, like I said, online, friends of mine talking to me about it. I don't dislike it. Here's why. What Senate Bill 100 does, two things. First is rather minor. It lifts the cash donation limit to 200 per person. So for those of you who are unaware, right now, in currently in Kentucky, you are not supposed to be able to, and a candidate is not supposed to take over $100 cash from one person per campaign period, okay? They're not supposed to take one over 100 cash per person. They can take check, they can take credit card, they can take, that's pretty much it, check and credit card, but they can't take it in cash. And part of the thought process here is because they want to be able to track uh, where the money's coming from, because there's reporting. See, in campaign finance, in both the federal and state levels, 
at all levels, local levels too as well. Anytime you give a donation to somebody, they have to collect your name, your employer, your occupation, your address. And when they report that money in, they, they provide those details. And then those details are available to the public to see. It's, it's a way to see who's quote unquote buying your legislators in a way. And it's a way to track as well uh, that if somebody's voting a certain way, you want to go back and see who's giving them money. I have a lot of people from one employer giving them money. Well, then they can look into that. And so um, it's, so it's all tracked. And a part of this tracking is they don't like cash. Well, this is lifting from 100 to 200. That's rather mundane. Almost everybody's fine with that. Here's the other two things. Well, thing it does that's major. It does a second thing that's major because of it. So what it does major is it removes donation limits. So this is really key. So right now in Kentucky, one individual cannot donate more than $2,100 per campaign to a candidate. So if they have a primary, you can do $2,100 and then in the general $2,100, but each individual can only give $2,100. Married couples, of course, can give $4,200 out of the same household, but each individual can only give $2,100 at the most per campaign. What this does is it removes that. So if you want to give 10 grand, 20 grand, 100 grand to one candidate, you would be free to do that. Now, initially upon hearing this, you would say, Andrew, this will let people buy politicians. This will increase money running politics even more. To which I say, no, it won't. And if you think that, I don't know if you've had enough the same, I'm not going to say enough. I don't, I don't ever want to degrade somebody's experience level, but you haven't had enough experience with campaign finance laws in practice and how they're working. Okay. Because there was, for those of you unaware, a few, like a few decades ago, uh, Citizens United, I believe ruling is what it's called, but this ruling that said that your money is considered your speech. So how you spend your money is your speech, and you have a First Amendment right to free speech. And so the ruling was that these campaign finance uh, laws that were limiting the amount of money you could give to a candidate was violating individuals' free speech So because they should be allowed to give and spend as much money as they want to in a political campaign because it's their speech. It's their free political speech. And that's what the ruling said, that they can spend as much money as they want to. But they kept these donation limits in, in place and instead they cooked up something called PACs. Well, there's a few different financial instruments, but they cooked up something called PACs mainly. And what PACs do, okay, is that they are allowed to take in sometime, depending on the type of pack, sometimes it's unlimited amounts of money, sometimes it's limited, uh, only so much per person. So, you know, in Kentucky, there's uh, uh, one kind of pack that can only bring in 2,100, another kind of pack that can bring in as much as they want. But so they bring in these packs, you have these packs and they can bring in money and then they can run campaign ads and mailers, all those things, uh, in elections, they're just not allowed to coordinate with the candidate. So basically, a candidate brings in, in Kentucky, let's say you want to give a candidate 
uh, $20,000, right? Well, you can do that through a series of different financial instruments or $50,000. You want to get a hundred grand into one candidate's campaign. You can do that several different ways. One would be is you can obviously give the candidate 2100 Then you could turn around and give packs depending on the pack type. But even if you're only, you know, allowed to give, you know, the max to each pack, well, you can spread your 100000 out over, you know, what would it be? About 20 or so packs. And you could do it that way. Another way you can do this, so currently in, and this is why, uh, being in leadership in the Senate and the House matters so much, as well as your parties matter so much, is there they do provide a financial vehicle because parties and uh, House campaign committees and Senate campaign committees, so you have a Republican House campaign committee, a Democrat House campaign committee, a Senate uh, Republican caucus campaign committee. And so what this is is these are run by the leadership in the House, leadership in the Senate, of each party, and then people can donate into these caucus campaign committees, then they're allowed to give unlimited and spend unlimited amounts of money to a candidate. So they can give and spend unlimited amounts to a candidate, and so can the political parties. They can spend and give unlimited amount to candidates. On top of that, they're allowed to do something PACs aren't. They're allowed to coordinate with the candidates. My entire point of explaining the current system right now if you're currently in power and if you've got normal run-of-the-mill big donors that are always donating to politics because, you know, they want to earn money off the government. Once again, these are the types of people that see it as investments. They know how this works. They're not stupid. They know how this works. And also because they control the levers of power, they have access to these other financial instruments like the party like the caucus campaign committees, so on and so forth. And so there is nothing really that stops somebody if they want to spend, once again, if they want to spend a hundred grand in a race, they can spend a hundred grand in the race. They can give a bunch to parties that can then spend unlimited amounts, county parties, district parties, state parties, then they can spend unlimited amounts. They can give it to caucus campaign committees. They can spend unlimited amounts. They can give it to PACs. They can spend unlimited amounts. They can give it to the directly to the candidate being stopped at 2100. But, but who does the current campaign finance laws then stop? And it's been my experience that the people that it actually stops are your anti establishment, upstart, not a whole bunch of rich friends per se candidates. That's who it actually ends up holding back. Why is that? Because you run into situations where you don't have people out there with, you know, billions or millions in the bank that spend tens of thousands of dollars on campaigns every year because they own a business and make money off government regulations and so on and so forth. You, you maybe don't have those people in your orbit, but you may have a rich friend or two that can afford to give you 10 grand and then they cut you a check and you can, if they're married, you can only take 4200 And then they're like, well, how can I get the other money sent to you? It's uh, definitely a real gray area on how much instruction you can give them on how they can spend the rest of the money on you. And it's a lot of explanation. And they need to give it to a PAC because if you're not good in with the caucus campaign committee, they can't give the money there to flow to you. If you're not in good with the local parties, 
because you're fighting the establishment who's controlling these things right now. They can't give money to them to then get it to you. So the only way they can get the money to you is through a PAC. But you as a candidate can't coordinate on PACs. You're not supposed to. I mean, it's a kind of one of those wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You see it all the time when they're not supposed to, but they do it anyways. But anyways, you can't. So you can't coordinate with a PAC to get it fired up to take their money. And you can't kind of instruct them like, hey, go get three buddies together and start a pack for my campaign. It gets real hairy and gray. So what ends up happening is, is when you have people who are anti-establishment fighters that people in the community want to support, and maybe they want to support them more, a little bit more than 2,100, maybe just a few thousand more, they can't get the money to them. And so you don't get it and it trips you up and that's who campaign finance laws is there to trip up the upstart. It's not helping the establishment. It's not holding them back. I mean, these campaign finance laws don't hold them back. They have access to all the tools they need in order to go ahead and get as much money as they want spent in a campaign. And if that's happening anyways, instead of having dark money packs and trying to figure out where this money comes from, that money comes from. There's a better way that this bill is looking at doing. We'll be talking a little bit more on that when we get back. You're listening to The Andrew Cooperwriter Show. And you are back with The Andrew Cooperwriter Show. I'm your host, Andrew Cooperwriter. Before the break, we were talking about Senate Bill 100 campaign finance bill that would uh, remove the maximum amount that somebody is allowed to donate to a candidate Right now in Kentucky, it's 2100 per individual. It removed that completely and allow individuals to give as much money as they wanted to to candidates. Now, I don't want to repeat myself entirely of the last segment, um, but if you missed it because you're just tuning in on, on the radio there, uh, I'm actually not entirely against this bill. I actually think this may help out the anti-establishment candidates. And if you're confused as to why that is, I encourage you, head on over to theandrewshow.com, subscribe to the show there. You can go back and see old shows if you want to. Um, and, and you know, after you get done listening to all this, you can go back and re-listen if you want to. Uh, but I want to save time for all those who are listening on the radio and not repeat myself a whole lot. So... The point is, is I'm not actually against it because right now there is nothing actually stopping somebody who's politically savvy from getting a hundred grand, 200 grand, a million dollars in to support a candidate they want to support. It is tripping up though, those who maybe they're not as politically savvy, new to the game, they're just giving a, they want to give a little bit more to a friend or they really believe in a candidate and they're like, we could swing giving you 10 grand. But they're not allowed to do that right now, and it's really legally difficult for a candidate to get that money, to instruct them how to make sure, <coughs> sorry, they get that money into your campaign. And so, not entirely against it, but here's what the bill needs, okay? The bill needs to go a step further in majorly re assessing, though, how we do our PACs, how we do all this other monetary expenditure. Basically banning them as much as we can. Say, look, you can give as much money as you want to a candidate. But all these dark money groups, these PACs, these other things where you can actually get money into a candidate and then hide 
where that money is coming from, which you can do right now in you could you could there are packs and ways out there you can do dark money groups uh is what it's called i'm not going to go too much into the regulation where essentially you can secretly spend money with a candidate because we've put in place these uh restrictions on how much money you can spend a candidate and look if if you've got a hundred grand to spend on candidate you can get it to him anyways i'd rather know who you are than to have dark money groups and trying to wonder who's buying my politicians I don't want, right now they're being enabled to secretly buy our politicians. I'd rather see it on paper, which I can do. You take away the funding restrictions, but then take away all the dark money groups, the PAC stuff and all those things where I can see everything. And if you want to give hundred grand to a candidate, feel free to, nobody's going to stop you, but everybody's going to know you did. And then when they're voting the way you want them to, we can all see them for the corrupt piece of trash legislator that they are. If that's where we are going with this, I'd hundred percent. I I don't. I couldn't think of a reason to ever be against this. I hope that would get added to the bill. There's one other thing the bill does that is very interesting, and it adds a two week filing in place instead of quarterly. So right now, uh, in campaign finance law, you file a report quarterly saying who's given you money, how much money they've given you, sources where what you've spent the money on, how much you've spent. Um, and right now that's required quarterly. And then when it gets closer to your campaign, you have to make a report 30 days out, 15 days out, 15 days post and 30 day post. So you do a 30 day pre, 15 day pre, 15 post, 30 post. And then otherwise you just do it quarterly. And this actually changes it to where it has to be filed every two weeks, which is fascinating. Because every two weeks gives you a real good idea of how much money somebody's going to have in their campaign, what they're spending it on, who they're spending it on. And it's interesting that Thayer would be the one to file it. He's the sponsor on this bill because I don't know if that hurts or helps the establishment more. He's definitely more of an establishment actor. Um, I don't know. But I think perhaps what's going on here is that there's a lot of you know, dumb laws... I think what Thayer's dealing with, because once again, fixing campaign finance by doing these kinds of things, it won't be popular. People will spend it however they want. I mean, even me, I'm I'm generally in favor of this legislation. I've seen people I know very well attacking this legislation, saying it's awful. It's going to end our elections as we know them. And quite honestly, I don't agree, but quite honestly, um, I, I think the way that it helps them is that once again, there's a lot of gray areas in campaign finance right now that can trip people up. And maybe that's been something they're worried about. So they just want to deal with this. So maybe that's it. Now let's move on though, to Thayer's trash bill, Senate bill three fifty. Let me tell you this one here, uh, pretty much unless you are currently in office, there is no reason for you to, um, like this piece of legislation. There's literally like like no reason, okay? So, and what do I mean? So Senate Bill 350 is a massive pay increase for our state legislators. Just absolutely massive. And when I say massive, I'm not kidding. Um, I'm saying like it's more than like a 100% pay increase in some situations. So let's Let's dig into what a legislator gets paid now, 
how much they get paid, and then let's compare that to what this bill would do. Okay, let's give you some good examples. So right now, while in session, legislators get paid 203-ish. <laughs> it sounds very exact, but it's there's some change there. But $203 a day plus uh, a per diem, that's about 200 bucks a day plus expenses. Uh, so they also get a reimbursement for expenses. And then while out of session, they get a quote unquote $1,900 a month expense allowance. Now this is really just a salary, but they can't call it that uh, because of, I think there's some constitutional concerns with the per diem pay and things. So they call it an expense allowance. So it's not an official salary, but you do get a check for $1,900 a month wrote to you. So there you go. And then on top of that, you also get uh, your expenses. And then anytime you're in a committee, if you've got a committee hearing or a, an approved legislative workday, and who approves that? Well, that's the uh, Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate. Those are the ones that approve those legislative workdays. So if you've got a committee hearing day or a legislative workday and you're out of session, you get paid then again your $200 a day plus your per diem, and and uh, you're still getting your 1900 So what this means, and I know that's a lot of numbers and it falls into a lot of different categories because they're playing a whole lot of games so you don't realize how much money they're actually making, but what this means is that the average legislator makes about fifty to $60,000 a year or so. In fact, the Herald-Leader ran an article, I think in 2022 or three that said that the average legislator all in was bringing home like their expense reimbursements and their salary and so on and so forth was uh, $63,333. That was how much they were bringing home. Sorry about that. Stumbling there. Um, because, you know, they have their little $200 a day salary, but then there's like a lot of reimbursements, a lot of fluff and everything else. Now the LRC does have a handy tool where we can really dig into exactly what these legislators are getting paid. Each year we can see what their expense reimbursements are, so on and so forth, and we can also see what their salaries are. And we can look at that using the tool and then look at what this bill that Thayer has proposed and see how much of a pay increase it is. And I tell you what, it is a massive, massive pay increase, the kind that should make your jaw drop. A huge pay increase. And we'll be going into just how big it is comparing apples to apples here. After this short break, you're listening to the Andrew Cooperator Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Want to reach out to the show? Feel free to email me at info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. We'll be back here in a few, few short minutes. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Before the break, we were just started digging into Senate Bill 350. It's a bill proposed by Thayer, which is a massive pay increase for legislators. And we wanted to look at just how big of a pay increase it is. So the LRC, Legislative Research Commission, which is like the administrative offices for the legislature, has this handy dandy tool where we can look at legislator's salary and legislator's expenses. So why don't we take a look at Thayer? Let's compare uh, what he would make under this bill compared to what he made in 2023. 
So he got uh, $25,132.04 in salary pay in 2023. And then he got, and it, it gets a little weird because, of course, you have, you know, that expense allowance per month and you also get reimbursed for expenses, which is why I have an expense allowance. But anyways, and then he got $33,822.53 on top of his twenty five k and an expense reimbursement. So he got a total of... $58,954.47 in 2023. That was his total, quote unquote, compensation. Now he had salary, he had a little bit of actual expense reimbursement, but as we talked about, a lot of that is an actual expense reimbursement. It's just a title they give it. It's more like a salary. And so let's look at, at his his fifty eight thousand dollars some change basically fifty nine thousand he made in twenty twenty three so let's look at uh, how he would fare under his legislation that he proposed so under this piece uh, of legislation he proposed Senate Bill three fifty because he's Senate Majority Leader he would now get a base salary of a hundred and five thousand dollars a year that's already fifty thousand more. Then he made with all of his expenses and everything else a year. Keep in mind, these are supposed to be part-time legislators. I mean, last year he pulled in 60K working a part-time job, okay? This year, what he's proposing, well, 58,000, what he's proposing is 105,000 a year for what is supposed to be a part-time job job. So it's already 50K more than what he makes normally in a year. But it doesn't stop there. Because now the allowance of expense reimbursement, it used to be like 1900-ish a month. Now it goes up to 2500 a month. On top of that, he would get an reimbursement of his expenses such as travel and as such. So if he had a similar reimbursement as he had in 2023, he would make his 105K base salary plus 2,500 a month for 12 months, that's 30,000. Then he would have a travel reimbursement which is $5,000. So that's now $140,000 a year he would make under his under this new piece of legislation. He was making less than 60 before. Now he's at $140,000. That is a one over a 100% pay raise. But you say, Andrew, you just said that there's on his way out. This is his last session. He's filing all these pieces of legislation. How will it help him? How does this benefit him? Well, on his way out, he's willing to take the slings and arrows, perhaps because he plans on, and he said it basically out loud here in the next two, three years or so, running for a new, another higher office. He's taking two years out, and then he's going to run for a higher office, I think, to maybe take some heat off his voting record and go make some money lobbying in other states for the gambling industry. But so he's on his way out. So who does this benefit? Perhaps he's buying support and votes and, uh, you know, donations into the future for his future run. So maybe we should take a look at 
the Senate president. So Senate President Stivers, let's take a look at what he made in 2023. And so in 2023, his salary was $36,748.92, and his expenses was $53,522, which, like, honestly, who has that much in expenses? Was he a long-haul truck driver? What's he traveling? And, and I brought this up. To, I'm like, that's a lot in expenses. He said, well, you know, he's going to a lot of conferences. On what, a private jet? I mean, literally, the expenses that this guy claims that he needs to operate as Senate president is more than some long-haul truck drivers claim in fuel cost. And they literally drive a truck over 40 hours a week. And this is, and then he claims it. But anyways, that brings his total compensation now to $90,270. So under this new plan, according to the bill, what would he make? Well, now his base salary would go up, would be $120,000. Then he would get his $2,500 expense and pay monthly. So that's another $30K. Then his travel reimbursement, which if it's the same as 2023 will be $23,617. So his total is now $173,617 a year. I mean, let's look at our congressman. Keep in mind, congressmen, which by the way, have a cap on reimbursements, but congressmen make $174,000 a year and have a max cap of reimbursement of expenses of $34,000 a year. And Congress meets year round. They have 150 session days a year. Kentucky has 60 in our long year, 30 in our short year. So on average, we meet 45 days a year for session Meanwhile, Congress meets around 150-ish or so a year for session, and Stivers is getting paid only a few, 10, you know, 30,000 less, but it's still a lot of money because we're talking about like 200K here. He's only getting paid a few thousand less than what a congressman gets paid to do 150-ish session days in D.C., a congressman from Kentucky. This is ridiculous. It's supposed to be a part-time job, a part-time job paying $173,000 a year. And keep in mind, okay, congressmen also, and this isn't in the bill, congressmen have a lot of regulations on how many jobs can they do outside of their job of congressman for example they can't practice law they can't be consultant they can't consult on government policy so it limits their ability to, they can't be on a paid for being on a board so it limits their ability to make an income and that's part of their ethics side of things that doesn't exist in Kentucky because it's been ruled that since this is a part-time job, you're allowed to go make a part-time income. So that means you have people like Thayer and you sit there and say, well, he, he's only making, you know, 60 K a year under his old thing. Yeah. But keep in mind, Thayer also owns Thayer Consulting, which consults with horse racing industries on government regulations. Now, if he was in Congress, he wouldn't be allowed to do that. You're not allowed to get paid to consult on government laws. 
So, but what they're saying is pay me like a congressman working a 25% of the session days of a congressman while also, oh, by the way, I don't want to be limited on the jobs I can hold outside of being in the legislature. Because you're not allowed to be a lawyer, a practicing attorney, if you're in the legislature federally. How many practicing attorneys do we have in our legislature? How many partners do we have in our legislature? A lot. And every single one of them are allowed to work that job while at the same time earning salary off the taxpayer. But now they want to get paid like congressmen because salary goes up for everybody. Everybody, even your rank and file house members would be receiving a 50 to 100% pay increase. It's not just stivers. It's everybody receiving massive pay increases with no regulations on how they work either. And no increase in work as well. It's not like they're doing more session days. Absolutely ridiculous. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. I hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you back here Monday. Have a great rest of your day.